everybody. Welcome to AFNT's podcast, bringing you up-to-date information on pension funds, security class action litigation, and all things related to your portfolio. Today, I'm speaking with Larry Bradley. Larry is the Executive Secretary Treasurer for NEBF, the third largest Taft-Hartley pension fund in the United States, serving over half a million participants and working hard to protect members and their portfolios. Larry is also an executive productivity coach, specializing in employee and organizational stress management and wellness. As the CEO of one of the largest national healthcare plans in the country, Larry knows what aspects of healthcare and wellness are misunderstood and underfunded. Larry felt compelled to share his knowledge in order to help others break through to build the foundation for a more awakened mental, emotional, spiritual self, which he believes will lead to healthier and more productive individuals. Larry is a three-time CEO and expert in leadership, business, and personal health. He has traveled across the country speaking on various topics, including healthcare practices, leadership, and production improvement. He is best known for his ability to see what others do not, and in turn, create positive change for funds and their members. Welcome, Larry. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. How are you this morning? Good morning, Atara. I'm great. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing okay, hanging in there with all that's going on in the world. It's like a crazy time now, right? It is a crazy time. (laughs) For sure. It It's getting crazier, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better, I suspect. Um, So I want to jump right in. I I want to start by just um, telling our audience a a quick story of how I met you at a conference. I think it was about three or four years ago now. You were the final speaker of the day, and I was kind of surprised to see a packed room. Um, I never heard you speak before. And I think your topic had to do with prescription drugs and welfare funds and members' use of them. Honestly, it didn't sound that glamorous to me, but there was this packed, packed room. At the end of the day, on a conference day, you and I know that's not easy to get, right? So I said, okay, (laughs) I'm going to sit in on this and find out why everyone is here waiting for Larry Bradley to speak. And honestly, Larry, I say this from the bottom of my heart. I said it to you after because I came over to you. You were truly riveting. Like There was not a sound in that room when you spoke. And it's not because they were sleeping. It was because everybody was really, really engaged in what you were saying. Um, and you basically detailed, you know, all the money that was spent on prescription drugs and the welfare system. You know, what is that really doing? And how can we provide members with alternative approaches to health, preventative health care, perhaps? And I'd really love to just jump right in that for a second and have you just give us a, an overview, because I know you're really passionate about that. So I'd love you to give an overview to us about for, you know, on preventative health and what that really means to you as the CEO of, of a fund, a very large fund. Sure, sure. I, so I know exactly what I was speaking of. You know, as a, I call myself now a healthcare insider because I run a very large national healthcare plan, as you know. And based on what I've learned and seen, and I've been in the benefit space for 40 years plus now, uh, based on what I've learned and seen in healthcare firsthand, and, and, and also an incident where my uh, my daughter at 32 was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer and still fine today, six years later, thank God. But between her diagnosis uh, that was improbable and my uh, inside information, I decided to take a deep dive into healthcare. And that was what you were hearing that day. Well, here's the, here's the, here it is in a nutshell. 
America, America spends two to three times more than any other nation on earth on healthcare. We are taking more prescription medication as a nation than the rest of the world combined. And despite that, our Surgeon General tells us that this generation of Americans alive today is the sickest to have ever lived. In fact, we may be faced with the first generation of children who will live sicker and die younger than their parents. That's what caused me to take a deep dive and say, what's wrong with the model? We're pouring more and more money into it. We're taking more and more medication, yet we're getting sicker quicker. I like to say we're getting sicker quicker and certainly much younger. Consider this. In 1960, which relatively isn't that long ago, less than 2% of our children had a chronic illness. Today, that number is north of 54% of our children. That bodes horribly for the future of healthcare. You think we're throwing, people think we're throwing money at it now. We can't sustain the model we're in, but the, the sad reality is most people don't realize that, including the members that I serve. And we need to, we need to awaken them to uh, one, what's going on, and two, what can we do about it? What else can we do? Because I'm not trashing modern medicine. I just think it's over overworked. Right, right. I mean, I think that's very well said. It's like there is a place for everything, and there is, of course, a place for prescription drugs. But let's discuss for a minute your, your idea, really, for your um, welfare fund. But really, uh, it's a great model for the country. Like, what else can we do to stop this and not just treat people's symptoms, but really get to them before they get sick and before their children are chronically ill. That's exactly right. And so what we need to do are, are uh, you know, as the, as the uh, uh, learned gardener would say, when I see a fungus on a leaf, I know it's a problem at the root of the plant. Our model just treats the leaf. We treat the symptom. We treat the fungus. We don't go for causal what's causing this problem and we need to alter we need to start looking at cause but even ahead of that like you just said what we need to do Tara and uh, uh, being a human being uh, if I own a business I run several businesses uh, the, the first and, and most foremost thing I would do right now right now is learn teach and disseminate stress management and mitigation strategies to everyone that works with and for me and everyone that I love and care about. Because stress is the number one delivery system of disease in America and man, are we stressed. And it's chronic. And that's causing inflammation. That's the precursor to every known disease. 70% of us in America have a chronic illness, which accounts for about 90% of the spend in healthcare. So you can see where this is going. As we keep getting sicker younger, these younger kids coming up, they're gonna be sicker way younger uh, they're going to tax the healthcare system and unfortunately their own health and well-being and feeling uh, uh, horribly. So people need to work on that immune function because nothing heals anything like an intact, fully functioning, optimized immune system. And there's a lot of strategies to get to that. And they're not invasive, poisonous, you know, cutting the whole nine yards. So practically speaking, like what, what would be the number one thing that you would say, okay, I, I agree with you 100%. I think stress is killing everybody. I think stress is even killing our children. And what we need to do is figure out how to reformulate um, children 
because they, like you said, are the future, but also, you know, waking up an adult and saying, hey, you're too stressed, we need to revamp things, is much harder than starting fresh with a child and saying, here's what we're going to implement in school systems to help with stress. And I noticed that there are some progressive schools that are implementing meditation and um, karate, which includes some meditation in it. So all these forms of de-stressors even for children, which I would love to see more of just as a, as a parent with school-age children. Um, but I'm, I'm curious like what you would do now practically for you know, your fund and other union funds to say, okay, here's what we're going to do for our members. Well, it's interesting what you're saying. I, I heard it eloquently said once that it's much easier to build a child than it is to repair an adult. And, and, and I agree. And I agree. And that's what we need to be about. You know, we need to get way out in front of this. And that is, you're absolutely correct. We got to get to our children. But first, as you said, we must awaken the adult. And that's not easy. But I'll tell you what, you know, they say you teach what you need to know. And, you know, I'm an Irish guy and I can go from zero to 60 and, you know, <laughs> milliseconds. And I, I had to learn myself because, you know, I knew and people would tell me, you're killing yourself. You know, you're, you're, you're dying on the, on the wrong mountain uh, frequently. And I, I decided I was going to learn uh, some things about how to, uh, how to uh, manage my stress levels, how to bring them down. And so I'll give you just a couple quick ones, right? And these are things we're disseminating to our healthcare plan. Now, mind you, note how expensive these, these are going to be, right? First one's deep diaphragmic breathing. Now, 10 years ago, I would have called myself a hippie and said, nah, this is garbage. This, this, this is stupid. A deep diaphragmic breathing, which is a natural state of a newborn, where you breathe deep into your belly, your belly expands, your diaphragm lifts. As we become adults, as we get more stressed and involved in our lives, as we become less and less aware of what we're doing, eating, drinking, consuming, uh, because we're so busy, we're so taxed for our time and attention, then we start to shallow chest breathe, and it's very unhealthy. And it affects everything from sleep patterns to stress level to lack of mitigating any stress. So you learn a deep diaphragmic breathing. And, and guess what? If you're sitting in a car, if you're sitting at, at dinner, if you're sitting in front of a television or a computer, Anytime, anywhere, you can just simply take in a deep breath into your belly for five seconds, hold it for five seconds, and exhale it for five seconds. You can play with those numbers, but do people, I tell people, do, do that three to four times a day as you think of it. Even use little index cards in various places to remind you to do it until you develop the habit. But do it three to four times a day and do it maybe five times each time you do it, five deep diaphragmic breaths. You're, you're detoxing your lungs, you're physiologically relaxing your body, and you're doing all kinds of great things for your health and your immune system. Amazing. Yeah. And it's so easy to do. Like you said, you could do this anywhere, anytime. Anywhere, anytime. I suggest that people, a lot of people are stressed out by traffic jams. I said, that's the perfect <laughs> right. time to re restate, re restage uh, what a traffic jam means to you. Because here's, here's the thing. People say to me, and you've heard it, uh, he stresses me out, or she stresses me out, or, or traffic jam stressed me out. No, you don't hear and I do this with everybody I love. I tell people now when they say things like that, I say, you know what, your stress is a choice. And let me explain that. It's not what's happening. We know this, but do we practice it? It's not what happens. It's not the traffic jam. Some people are rocking out or listening to a book or, you know, just having a good conversation. Other people are pounding the steering wheel going nuts. That's a choice. That's simply a choice. Reframe that to say, hey, what? I'm going to take advantage of this traffic jam. I can't control it. I'm going to take advantage of it. I'm going to do some deep diaphragmic breathing, practice my speech, or, or you know, 
jot some notes or whatever. So stress is a choice. And I think that's an issue of awareness. When you really become aware that when you stress, you're choosing it, it's powerful because then what do we know? We know we can control it. I can choose something else. There's a saying, Tara, that I think is so critical and I teach it relentlessly now. And it is this, that unexpressed emotion cannot die. So if we're harboring, and many of us are, anger, fear, guilt, disgust, you know, I'm just insane, you know, stressed out all the time with this person, that person. If you don't deal with it and express that emotion, and I say sincerely and lovingly, people that really have equity in me and I have equity in them, I can say anything to them if I'm in sincerity. And, I, and, and if, I, if I address an emotion that's maybe not so pleasant with someone right. just to try to resolve it, it says I have equity. I do care about this relationship. Now, it doesn't always end perfectly, but you've got it expressed. You've got to get it out of you. Otherwise, it's eating you alive. I think that's so well said because, you know, there are a subset of people who don't act on their stress and they just keep it inside. You know, there's a whole bunch of people who get angry. And in a way, those people are easier to teach, right? Because they're able to express themselves in anger. So we can also then teach them to channel that anger differently. I'm very concerned, though, about the people who subvert their emotions. And there's a whole subset of those people, right, who say it's not okay to show anger. I'm going to keep it inside. And eventually they cannot. And that is what's killing them, right? That's what's giving them heart attacks and chronic illness and all of what you're discussing. And those are the people that we really need to say to them, no, you need to be doing this breathing. Um, Wouldn't you agree? I heard someone say, absolutely. I heard someone say recently that, you know, half of the men, almost half of the men in this country that consider suicide will never speak to anyone about it. And, and this person said, and I just fell in love with this, they said, we got to quit telling them to man up and tell them to speak up. You got to talk. You got to find someone and you got to talk. You know, think about this. Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian in history, right? Just incredible human being. What's beautiful about Michael, and he's working with Talkspace now. It's an it's a app-based and online-based healthcare plan. Uh, in fact, we're talking to him to bring that to our population is an opportunity that no matter where you are, like Michael Phelps said, I was all over the world dealing with my demons because I traveled to compete. He said, and I did mostly online counseling because he sought help, thank God. And uh, he did well. People need to learn that there's a trusted place and space and people with whom you can talk and, and speak up. And, not, and it could be family, friends, and loved one. In fact, in many cases, it should be. But you got to say something. You got to speak up. And same is true for women as well. People often think vulnerable is weak. I think vulnerable is incredibly strong. It's just the opposite. I agree. But how do we um, tell that and, and maybe teach that, right, to, to our union members? And we've got a whole bunch of, like, quote, tough guys. There are police officers. They're firefighters. They're electrical workers. They're not used to, like, discussing their emotions and getting all touchy-feely and saying, I feel bad about this or this is stressing making me feel stressed. How do we teach them to change their dialogue and to realize that it's okay to, to talk about these things and that it's actually necessary? Is there a plan for that? There is. And what we're finding, uh, powerfully finding, is that when we speak, and when I say speak, I mean write, actually speak at a conference, do webinars, do recordings. In fact, I'm doing one next week for the industry. And it's on this very topic, these very topics. When you speak to a group of people, I'll give you an example. I just did a conference a couple, right before all this fell apart at the end of uh, January, 
I started off uh, and, and, and the room was struck with silence, as you say, because I talked about three young girls in a little town in Pennsylvania that jumped up in front of a train and killed themselves at 50, beautiful girls at 15 years old, right? You know, at the end of that session, here's my point about communicating this stuff and talking about it openly. Well, at the end of that, I had a line it, it, it lined up to talk with me at, at a terror. The first three were grown men bawling their eyes out and, and opening up to me, a stranger, about their personal issues. And of course, I urged them to, to seek help. And now in the healthcare plan, we're providing ways because, you know, there's still a stigma. I, I was at a conference recently. You'll, 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 you'll be blown away by this. There was a doctor speaking to 500 of us. He started out, he had just lost, this was in April of last year. He lost his son, 24 years old, to suicide the prior Christmas. And he said, listen, I want to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask you, how many of you know someone that has dealt with or is dealing with and fighting cancer? Every hand went up. Some people had two up, right? 500 people. He said, I want you to just yell names to me, yell out adjectives of how you would describe those people. And people started saying, warrior, champion, survivor, you know, wonderful things. He said, all right, now let me flip, the, flip the, to, to uh, how many of you know someone dealing with a mental issue? Well, not every hand went up, but a lot of them did. A lot of them did. And he said, same thing, and I promise you, you cannot offend me. You will not offend me. Just yell out the adjectives that come to mind when you think of these people. Right. And he heard things like kook, wacko, weirdo, nut job. And he said, you think there's no stigma? Why do you think half the men that think about suicide won't talk about it? Like you said, especially in our industry, oh, we're rough and tough construction workers, you know? But I'll tell you what, we're all vulnerable when we, we strike the right chord, when we touch the right emotion. And that's what we're learning. People need, people need they call it social proof in the world of influence. People need to know that other people are in the same boat and they're coming forward and they are getting help. And then, they, then they'll open up more you know, to, to deal with it and talk about it. It's kind of like social responsibility almost, right? Where if we begin to feel that we're responsible for not just ourselves, but for one another, um, then we won't be looking down at people for these kinds of um, what we think vulnerabilities, which is not a bad thing. And we'll start to feel like, you know, we're all in this together. We all have to get well together. And this is a way and making everybody else feel like we're, we're doing this. I'm doing it. You're doing it. It becomes very socially acceptable. And I think that's very important um, to retrain a whole generation of people in their thinking. Well, it, it, it's interesting because in that conference, you're absolutely right. I asked everyone to literally look at the person in front of you and behind you, look at the person on your right and your left. I gave them a minute to do it. And I said to them then, you have no idea what that person is dealing with. And we talked about kindness. And I, it, here's, here's a bonus, right? So immune function. Do you know that acts of random kindness and acts of volunteerism increase the production of T cells, the disease-fighting cells in our body and the thymus gland? Actually increases our immune function, just being kind. How, how powerful is that? And it also releases serotonin, the happy hormone. It makes us feel good. I run at the beach, and there's always these hot dog vendors. And a couple of weeks ago, I was out running, and I just stopped, and I said, how much are your hot dogs? He said, 10 bucks. There's a couple of people in line. I said, here's 20 bucks. I said, I want to buy the next 20 hot dogs for the next 20 people in line and just continue my run. 
And my, my son was with me and he said, dad, how do you know he's going to give away 20 hot dogs? I said, I don't, but you know what? I don't care. You know how good that felt just to be able to do that, pay it forward, take care of somebody. It's a minor thing, right? But it, it, it's meaningful. So being kind to people. And that's one of the things I think in our schools, we need to start teaching more of, right? But, but we got to get the science behind how is it affecting us from a physiological and a mental, emotional we got to treat the holistic person, not just the curriculum to learn or attempt to learn for the student. Because you could you could graduate, you know, magna cum laude and be totally messed up in your head, right? How many of those, how many of those do we know? Oh, a ton of them. <laughs> As a lawyer, I know many, mm-hmm. <laughs> sadly. But, you know, what's very interesting that you just said to me was, I don't even know if you realize, but it's so important that we get the science behind it because we are dealing with a whole group of people, myself included, you know, lawyers, educated people who are going to say, yeah, I don't know. Does this really make sense? I think we're turning a corner where people are seeing that it does. But in order to really turn this into the movement it needs to be, we have to get the science behind it. So I, I really like to see that happen because once it's hard science, it's going to be very difficult to not move these practices forward. Well, listen, in your, in your movement with, with Curly Girly, uh, that's so spot on, is we, we have to take things that we know are affecting our children and teach around them to not just enlighten them, but to overcome. I, I, I hear what I hear most frequently, especially from professionals, is, I, yeah, I get it, but you know, just like you said, I get it, but I'm too busy for that. I've got a favorite question to ask them now. I say, let me ask you a question. If you have a heart attack, are you too busy to recover or are you going to make time to recover? You're going to make time to recover. Well, why wait? Make time, to, make time to heal now before it happens. Right. And I think what you're saying um, is that just in the, in the union world and the pension fund world and the healthcare system generally, that if we can teach people um, pre- this, all this preventative health in a, in a real sustainable way that makes sense to all walks of life, then we're going to have less need for all these prescription drugs and all these medical treatments that are really eating away at the fabric of our healthcare system. Am I saying that right? Absolutely. Uh, Tara, Dr. Norman Cousins is one of many, but Dr. Norman Cousins, whom I'm a big fan of, survived three death sentences in his, in his life. And a uh, doctor at UCLA, and he would tell you that 85 to 90% of illness is self-limiting. And what he means by that is if you do nothing, your body will heal itself. That's the remarkable machine that it is. If you listen to Dr. Deepak Chopra or Bruce Lipton, they'll tell you somewhere between 1% and 5% of diseases are actual gene mutation. 95% is undigested emotion. Remember, unresolved emotion can't die. And when it's not dying, it's poisoning us every day with a chemical cocktail, a physiological, real chemical cocktail. Think about this. When people cry tears of anger versus tears of joy, the literal chemical composition of the tears from that same human are entirely different. The angry tears are way more toxic chemically. So you think our minds isn't talking to our body uh, it, it absolutely is on real time all the time. That's why it's so important to learn to relax. Also, I learned to meditate again, thinking I, yes. you know, 
10 years ago, I was a hippie if I did that. Right. I, I <laughs> the notion. But I'll tell you, people say to me about meditation, because how great is this for our mental state and our immune system, our stress level and inflammation? It lays all of that down. And the, and the results of the meditating are cumulative over time. And I've proven that to myself. I've got people to work on. Where's the old Larry? What you do with him? You know, the guy who goes zero to 60. I said, well, you know what? I like this one better. And I think this one's going to live longer. Exactly. I've longer okay. and happier. You know, there's a book that I'm reminded of. I wonder if you know it um, um, by Kelly McNogle. She is a PhD. Um, and she writes a book called, many books, one of them, though, particularly apropos, is The Upside of Stress, where she really de- details what what the chemicals are that go into our stress levels. Um, so it's it's somewhat scientific in that way. And also how we can make stress work for us rather than against us. So I think that's something similar to what we're saying here. I want to move a little bit away from this um, and talk about, you know, the situation we're in now with the coronavirus and how that's just affecting our plan members and our participants. Um, I had read in the Financial Times that quite a few pension funds are actually worried that in 2028, they're going to actually run out of money, which really leads to, you know, severe risks of lower standards of living for thousands of employees, retirees, and the country as a whole, right? So what is your take on this? What are we going to do about this? Is this a problem? I mean, I know I'm asking more than one question here, but is this a problem that is going to become more prevalent for pension funds all over the country? Or is there something we can do? To stop it, this, uh, Terry, it's it's not unlike healthcare. We're going to be required to develop strategies and and, and procedures to uh, to raise capital or or bring back capital, kind of like what you're doing uh, uh, to funds. Because look, the coronavirus shut a lot of construction work down across this country. So obviously, people aren't working. They're even more stressed. Go back to the health side. They're way more stressed out. I think you're seeing some of that bear out in what's happening right now across our country, but also uh, contributions coming in are 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 hurt uh, significantly in some cases, and in many cases, this is to funds that are already in trouble. I'm fortunate that we have a fund that's very healthy, relatively very healthy, but here's the problem: when they go to pension reform, for example, there are two main bills that they're talking about in legislature putting putting across, and they're diametrically opposed bills. Uh, and, and one of them has a consequence, and I don't know which one will, will, will succeed, if any, but they're talking about possibly bringing it you know, in the next stimulus package, but I'll caution you, they talked about bringing it in the last one too. So they may not get anything done, but if they don't, you're right, there are funds that are that in that much trouble that they will run out of funds. But conversely, Take all that I already said that's impacting our funds. Now now you're going to have the potential for the PBGC, Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, to significantly raise its premiums that every defined benefit Taft-Hartley pension fund pays. So, for, for example, they're at, I think, $29 per member per year now. They're talking in the likes of $100 to $150 to $200 per member. That's hundreds of millions of dollars uh, overnight. So you taking an already stressed system and putting more stress on it, uh, it doesn't bode well for funds that are already really struggling. It doesn't bode well for even our fund. Right. No, it's, it's actually, it's somewhat frightening to think about, you know, what are we going to do in the aftermath of this? You know, we did recover 
from the 2008 crisis, but this seems even you know, worse than that. And so I'm just very concerned for the fate of our pension funds and our union funds. Well, these pension plans, as you know, they'll have upwards of 60 or more percent of their assets committed to equities. And when you have a situation like 08 or a situation like 2020, 2020 uh, that's a significant hit uh, financially. And, you know, it, it's kind of like a, a downward spiral with all these things, you know, piling on one another to, to hurt these plans. But listen, the other thing we got to keep in mind is there are hundreds of thousands or millions even of members out there that have worked a career that earned these pensions that uh, are, are relying on. That how do you go to them and say, well, you're out of luck? I mean, talk about stress. <laughs> right, exactly. So we're, I mean, and it also, what's what's somewhat frightening about what's going on is it, it doesn't even feel like there's a, quote, right thing to be investing in now, right? Um, you know, if the equity market isn't doing well, you say, okay, so maybe we'll do, we'll invest in bonds, but that doesn't seem to be a safe bet now either. And real estate, which would be another, uh, something you would say, okay, I'm not going to do bonds or equities. I'll, we'll invest more in real estate. That also doesn't seem to be a good bet all over the country now. And then even foreign equities, because this is, the pandemic is a global problem. Even that doesn't seem to be a good idea. So it kind of, um, puts our, our pension leaders and our trustees who sit on boards in a, in a place where they really have to start thinking of creative ways to, to solve these, these issues. Yeah, because if you look at it, all these funds, just like ours, assume a certain rate of return. What we're realizing, based on what you just described, is that it's harder and harder to meet that bogey each year. And as you do not meet it, you know, you take an actuarial hit on your funding level and that can get nasty depending on how low that goes, you know, with the red zone and all that stuff. So, and, and listen, I just recently listened to a forecast on real estate and I could tell you I was, and I don't say this, I don't know if I've ever said it before. I sat in that room literally frightened at what I was hearing about, especially retail. Uh, when we come out of this uh, Corona and we will, we will, right. But, well, you know, think of all the people working from home right now. I've got two shops working from home. They don't want to come back. They don't even want to. Right? They're arguing, even the leaders. Why should we come back? We're doing great. We're doing great. So what does that say for commercial real estate? It's not, it's you know? a disaster. So you're, you're in yeah. Manhattan, right? Yes, I am. It's a disaster. <laughs> and, and, and the Corona's chased some people from the highly populated areas in the big cities. Likewise, so residential real estate. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I was saying to my husband the other day, I feel that a lot of people who were families living in the city really happy to be close to work, close to school, so they can get back and forth to everything they needed to do easily, are suddenly going to rethink this entire thing. And that is going to very much affect the residential um, market. And I think that's true, like you're saying, across the board, across the country, because so many people are going to be rethinking their work plan. And that's going to have a huge impact. But I don't want everything to look so, so bleak. I, I do want to say that there are um, ways that we can continue to maximize portfolios. You know, we work at AF&T really hard to try to come up and, and look at creative, look at things creatively. Like, how can I increase returns for our, our funds and our clients? And we do that through 
uh, maximizing the recoveries on their portfolios. I want to urge everybody to remember that they have to, if they're not on top of filing their claims, and sometimes big unions and big pension funds cannot be, um, they need to outsource that to a law firm who does that. And um, and then also to remember, you know, the courts are still going. There are cases still to be brought, and we're, we want to bring them and recover money for um, all funds everywhere. So that's uh, something that we, it's a different topic, but it's on this vein of like, let's not give up all hope. Let's try to fortify and kind of rethink. Because I remember there was a time where there were a lot of pension funds who were saying, oh, I don't really want to be involved in securities class action litigation, right? Right. But that, I think that needs to change. I think that was changing. And I think that's going to need to change even more as things evolve, because we need to look at all avenues of recoveries and increase increases for our portfolio. Would you agree? Absolutely, across across uh, between healthcare and pension. Yes, there's, to your point about investment alternatives, there's going to be more and more money, you know, chasing the same alternatives. So how how alternative are they going to be, and how how, how you know what is the real return? So I, I you know it's like turning stones. You, if people are going to be looking harder and further and deeper to 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 preserve and find and perhaps even claw back assets. Uh, I, it certainly that applies on the healthcare side as well. Now, think about on healthcare with these docs not doing uh, elective surgeries and procedures. Oh my God! That's a huge loss of revenue to them. You think they're not going to want to make that up? Of course they are. Of course they will. I didn't even think of that. That's such a great point. And and so and you know I think you and I had discussed this. So much of the you know orthopedists and the doctors who were um, dealing with elderly doing hip surgeries, knee surgeries, well, those elderly people aren't going out now to get any of that done. How has that affected those doctors and in turn the healthcare system at large? Because that is all going to come back to haunt everybody. And we need to figure out ways and we need to, to have people like you really think about this and how are we going to deal with um, unions and our members and our retirees in the aftermath of Corona. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what I, what I'm telling all of my leadership teams is listen, because everybody has opinions, including me about, you know, the future. But I said, look, let's take a pause and let's listen to what this virus is teaching us. Cause it's teaching us a lot. Let's take the lessons, learn from them and then pivot and adjust where we think it's appropriate. It's going to open opportunity as much as like you were saying, There'll be opportunity beyond this that didn't exist in front of it. And the key is to be able to find it and take advantage of it. Right. And I think more to your point is to be flexible and nimble because, you know, I, I try to teach that to my children, right? Like life throws you different things and different curveballs and how you get through them and how you are able to pivot. I love that word. Um, really, those are the people and that will stand the test of time. And that's what we need to teach our children and, and ourselves is really let's be flexible and think more broadly and not just be stuck in, we've always done it this way. We don't like doing it like this as a pension fund, so we're just not going to do it. Let's think more broadly. And let's remember, you know, there were a whole bunch of retirees, right, who had no idea how to use Zoom, right? I'm plugging for Zoom now. <laughs> but <laughs> think about it, right? Like three months ago, I, you know, I told my father, he's in his 80s, when I first said the word Zoom to him, he was like, what? 
I was like, dad, I'm going to teach you Zoom. It's really easy. And you know what? He was resistant at first, but I was like, this is the way you're going to be able to see your grandchildren. <laughs> so now he knows. What so, a gift. Right? What a gift. Exactly. Yeah. So we can learn a bunch of new things even in our old age, right? Absolutely. <laughs> hey, I once went to see uh, uh, Stephen Covey, the Seven Habits guy. Yes. And he did a day-long teaching. It was phenomenal. And he said, and he always says this, I understand, or did. He's passed now. He said, before the sun sets tonight, teach what you've learned today to someone else. He said, even if it's your dog or your couch, right. just speak it because one, you'll retain it better, but two, you'll be sharing it. I'm a big advocate of, you know, we got to awaken the adults and teach them and awareness is key and then have them teach their families and loved ones. I don't, there's, there's hardly a thing I learned that I find valuable that I don't pass on to my entire family. I love that. And they'd say that. ad nauseum sometimes, but guess what? <laughs> they listen and they learn. And I know because I see some of them practicing some of the things. And, hey, it's all about just trying to help one another. We're in this together. Yes, we are. Like and you it know, or not, we're, we're a family. We really are. And I, you know what I always say when I – one of the things that I love most about my job being a, a securities class action attorney is really that I, I deal with pension funds from across the country. I meet people from all walks of life. And I enjoy that more than anything because at the end of the day, I have so many people that I really consider friends after having met them at conferences like you. And I, I realize that we are all the same. We all want the same things for ourselves, for our children, for our lives, right? We want to feel secure and safe and happy and successful and have a meaningful existence. And that is just a universal truth. So I want to end with that because I think that we need to all remember that. I'm so happy to have good people like you um, in the pension world, in the union world, helping so many others. And personally, I'm so honored to count you as a friend and a mentor. So thank you so much for coming on um, the AFNT podcast. I really appreciate it. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, Tara, right back at you. And I got to tell you something real quick. Uh, you know, I have a relatively newer granddaughter. She's uh, oh, about a year and a half, uh, Claire. Uh, and she has uh, got a little head full of curly hair. So <laughs> guess who's getting introduced to your movement? <laughs> uh, I love that. Go curly girly and go Claire. Send me a Absolutely. picture. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so Carol. much. Thanks for saying that. My and pleasure. It, was, it was really, really amazing chatting with you. I think a lot of people are going to learn from this. So I'm excited to share it. Thank you. I appreciate being with you always. All right. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. Bye-bye.